From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Season 5 of Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Matt and Katie, the winemakers at Dynamis Estate Wines in Jonesville, North Carolina. Matt and Katie talk to us about what it takes to create a premium wine brand in North Carolina and how they're working hard to create a top quality product. We're happy to announce that Wine Class of the Wine Mouths is back for Season 5. Stick around to hear about the theme for this season. This episode is made possible by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. All right, so we're here today with Matt and Katie from Dynamis Estate Wines. Matt and Katie, welcome to Cork Talk. We're glad to be here. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, super excited. Thanks for having us. So why don't you two introduce yourselves and tell folks who you are and what you do at Dynamis? Sure. Uh, I guess I, I can start. Um, so I'm Matt Worrell, um, one of the winemakers, one of the partners. Um, Katie and I have kind of founded this company, um, but we don't like attach it too much to our titles. But yeah, Matt Worrell winemakers. <laughs> My name's Katie Kidd. Yes, I'm the other winemaker uh, slash one of the partners and owners here, and kind of here. A lot of different hats within the company. Yeah. <laughs> As you often do when you work at you know, North Carolina Winery. And right, yeah. Yes. So tell us how Dynamis got started. Yeah, so uh, going back in time to 2019, which doesn't feel like it was that long ago. Um, <laughs> but yet at the same time, an eternity ago. Right? Yeah, I know, I know. It's, <laughs> it's been a, a lot of, a lot, I mean, lots of change since then. Um, but uh, it just kind of happened that Katie and I have been working together now for almost going on our seventh season so we've known each other pretty well and um you kind of like find a dynamic with people and once you kind of click with somebody you want to continue to work with them and i mean i think it comes to a point in everybody's career where they want to start their own brand just like a chef might want his own restaurant winemakers do i think want their own winery at least i know i did and katie did um and working with this property so um katie's known about it probably longer than yeah, so we're familiar with the property, and um, it's really quite extraordinary. But at the time, it was a vineyard planted just selling grapes to other wineries in the area. At the time, there was no winery on site. The plan was just, just to sell all the grapes growing for the property. But we had an opportunity to pitch a business plan to the owner of the property of why we felt like we could really have a premium brand and a winery on site. Yeah, it was, well, we were looking in North Carolina from a point of growth, and we know that the way we set the brand up wouldn't have worked in Asia, for example. Um, so we kind of saw, A, first, the great vineyard site with great fruit, incredible chemistry, and we kind of saw that as an opportunity to, if someone is going to move into that market, that doesn't really produce, it's not saying that North Carolina doesn't make premium wines, but they do. There's plenty of great producers out there, but they were kind of paving that way for somebody like us to step in. So um, as everybody else has been growing, we kind of just kind of paid off that and um, and creating our own kind of spin on the business. Um, we've always been fans of like Opus One, Record of Inc, and uh, Trailblazers and their industries and how they've kind of changed uh, the perception of like East Coast wine, not just one obviously, but I think people have looked at them on the East Coast saying, hey, let's try to model like, you know, reservation only, smaller production, um, really high quality, and make a few wines. That's the other kind of different keys. Like we want to, you know, they make two, um, we make five currently, but that's still, um, in retrospect, a small list in comparison to a lot of people that's really trying to do something well. Um, it's kind of like a restaurant, right? So you yeah, don't want to have you don't like want to see the big massive menu. menu yeah. Yeah. Like, do you yeah. do anything really well, or do you want to focus in on what you want to do the best? Right. We we never want to spread ourselves too thin. We yeah, we wanted to focus on, like you said, like what what we do well and really achieve at that. And 
um, our focus from the very beginning was that really making the best wine, essentially a winemaker driven winery mm-hmm. uh, concept that way. Yeah, yeah, which is, uh, you'll see it where like people have their careers like either out west or anything, and you'll see like, oh, this winemaker gets a little traction and notoriety, and you'll see them split off from whatever winery they're working for and start their own company uh, shortly after they usually have a lot of success. Same with restaurants. Chef and restaurants are awesome because they really care about what they're doing. Uh, there's no, you know, quotas. Like, it's less of a, oh, we have to hit all these deadlines. It's we're going to make the best product, period, and um, present that to you. And it was also just, again, of like, we both grew up in North Carolina. So we wanted to stay in North Carolina. And we liked dry red wines, dry white wines. Uh, we wanted to be taken very seriously. And um, you kind of have to create your own mold. And there's limited opportunities for like really big jobs um, for that in North Carolina because people that are in their positions you know, that stay there are staying there for a reason. Um, so this was our like one shot to make it work for us in North Carolina. Whereas you know, we talked about, well, I guess we'll have to you know, move to California or not do the Europe or anything. And it's like, we don't want to give up. So this was like that one time to do it. And we uh, took that idea and ran with it. So... You mentioned that the vineyard was planted before you all got started. So what was what was planted originally and have there been any changes since? Yeah, so um, I know the first half of it was planted in 2015. Mm-hmm. And um, we're mainly looking at Bordeaux red wines here. Um, started with a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon, a lot of Petit Verdot. Uh, and then there were some grapes that were planted that kind of fit the needs of the area. Like people wanted Tramonet, so Tramonet is on our site currently, um, that that has changed. And then uh, Pinot Gris. So there's a lot of Tramonet Pinot Gris, and then you had had Capsaw, Petit Verdot, and Merlot. So we had three out of the five, and then uh, about, I think the following season, like 2016, and some in 2017, we started adding, oh yes, we're not even there yet. Um, (laughs) Sauvignon Blanc, so that's your Bordeaux white. Um, Chardonnay was planted, I'm not sure exactly why, but it's there. Because everyone um, plants Chardonnay. That's it, exact. Someone's gonna have some Chardonnay somewhere. Um, and then they also <laughs> added Malbec um, and Cabernet Franc. So we eventually accumulated all five red border grapes. We have Reserving on Blanc. And for the future, like I was talking about China earlier, so we are gonna pull up some of those plantings to put in more Cab Franc and more Merlot. And probably more Cab Sauv in the future too. And those types of things. Okay, you mentioned it was kind of a unique property itself. So we've been there, it's awesome. Walk the listener through what it's like getting to there. So it's about, I'd say about a two and a half mile drive up to the tasting lodge where you actually have the um, wine tasting experience. So as Matt was talking about the vineyard site, the first vines that you actually see are actually some of our newer plantings. Um, You drive up and you first see, it's kind of, to me, I've always felt like it's like driving into um, a national forest yes. or a state park um, as you're surrounded by trees. Um, and then you drive up and you see some of our newer plantings of Cabernet Sauvignon and you see Petit uh, and some Malbec on, on the right side. Uh, you continue to drive up and you see some of our white plantings of Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc. Um, and then once you get closer to the tasting lodge, actually, as you're looking out from the tasting lodge, you'll look out to our older vines where our Cabernet Sauvignon is, and our Merlot is, and our Petit Verdot as well. I noticed one of the key things you kept on saying in there is, and you keep driving up. Yes. And you keep yeah, driving up. Yeah, it's a, almost a thousand foot elevation change, like from the gate all the way up. And I mean, it could come to the point of, like, for example, It'll be snowing at the top of the mountain. And as I was like driving down and checked the mail one time, that snow turned to rain. And uh, that's just how drastic the difference is of just a few miles. Yeah, it can be as much as about a 10 degree temperature shift just from the top of the mountain to the bottom. So, what kind of benefits does that give you from like a grape growing perspective? Well, we can split this up. I'll take some of them if we have to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, sure. yeah, so really looking at so elevation as a concept is one, it's airflow. Um, so, Frost is a big issue in North Carolina. That's like one of the big things. And um, for that elevation, you know, people always think, well, you know, higher elevations should be cooler temperatures, and maybe you're at a 
higher risk and that's not really the case. I mean, once you get up to like maybe 5,000 and going towards like Banner and Elephant Dune, uh, you're not growing a lot of grapes up there. Um, but we actually get that shift of, you know, cold air is denser than warm mm-hmm. air. So it's rolling down the hills. And as long as your vines are on mm-hmm. that slope, you're avoiding that long contact time with you know, cold, cold right. temperatures that are actually causing damage. Not saying we're immune to it, like we will still get, you know, frosted, but not to the point that we're worried about it. We're talking, you know, 5% max. And this kind of like roots back into the history of, um, they were orchards almost, you know, for a century planted out. They still are. And I'll say Joseph Weller, he's our favorite <laughs> orchard manager, he's really upset. But I didn't mention that too, because he has a lot of pride in those trees. Um, but it has always been a proven site for growing small trees. And um, that's a good indicator versus like, you know, a lot of people with tobacco farms or uh, cow pastures or anything mm-hmm. like that. And um, stemming from we've always grown tiny fruit, we're still growing tiny fruit. This is grapes. <laughs> Smaller versus yeah. apples. <laughs> well, yeah, way more grapes than apples. Uh, but we still have apples. But yeah, so uh, elevation to the frost protection to the same thing with the slopes. So. so that kind of like transitions to rainfall then. With, we don't have rain here. Yes, and somewhat similar to Bordeaux, actually, they get a decent amount of rain, but they have very well-drained sites. Even even looking at rainfall that we do have, you can really see like even a couple hours after rain that really the, from the slope that we have and the, and the soil that we have, um, we don't have quite as much clay. Uh, we have a lot more rocky soil. So it doesn't really retain yeah. a lot of that moisture. Yeah, so you're, you're getting rid of moisture quickly. That's mm-hmm. kind of like the challenge there is as rain falls, it clays a little bit of the sponge. So right. it's going to stick around. You know, as the sun comes up and heats up, you're going to boost your humidity in your vineyard. Uh, so where here is, yeah, water is taken out really quickly. Um, and there's also debris. So the constant um, movement of the air. And yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Air circulation. So it's a combination of air circulation, getting water out, wicking moisture out with a breeze. And then uh, I think it's the highest <laughs> elevation in the atmosphere. I think there's a plaque somewhere. Sure seems like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so being like at that elevation, like I was in New York, I guess from a winemaking standpoint, that's allowing us to ripen these wines um, with less disease pressure. Of course, we still have disease pressure like everybody else, but we can kind of hang it out there a little bit. Pushing a lot of our harvests closer to November. A lot of times it's like, you know, it's the last weeks of October that we're kind of pushing up the cabin until now. These are varietals that you want to make your true to farm. If not, make a rosé, and that's always good, too. And that's what we started doing with Malbec. So, like, you know, Malbec for us was, like, it made an okay red wine. And we use it in blends, but it's never been to the point of, like, oh, let's plant some more Malbec because it's so stellar. <laughs> you know, it's, it's okay for a red grape, but for a rosé, it's awesome. High yields, and if you're going, like, cropping things up, rosé is the time to do that. Um, pick it early, it makes something really nice and fresh. Don't bank on it every year to be, like, that one component to your blend that you need to put on it. We wouldn't recommend a whole vineyard inside of just no. <laughs> well, not, that's, not on the East Coast from what we've tried. Yeah, I know some people really do, you know, give it a, a good uh, good shot, like um, King Family in Virginia, for example. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they make a single bottle. I don't think every year. Yeah, they do kind of like, they have like a small batch series that they do with it. Yeah. Um, it's limited here in North Carolina, too. There's very few people who do just a single bottle. Right, and I think a lot of times it's just, yeah, so it's a blending grape, um, but they're really large berries. So like they're full of water and you know that's fine for us all. So you mentioned that previously there was an orchard built. So yeah. let's spend some time talking about the orchard history. Yeah. So uh, again, uh, Joseph's the guy. Um, but I think <laughs> a little bit. I think it was, was it 1915. Essentially, so. like yes. I'm, I think locals will say that there's evidence of it dating back further than 1915. But it was it was apple orchards. I think they had tomatoes up there. So we're still talking about small fruit on vines. Yeah. But um, at one point it was. Was it a was it a hundred acres of apples? Is that crazy? It was a large planting. I didn't know that. But because like for example, today I think fruit trees take up like ten acres of totality. It's a it's a fifteen hundred acre property. I guess also to put that in full perspective. But um, the the tasting lodge where we do our tasting experiences is where the apple house was. Yeah, and it, it was. Um, I guess, yeah, apple storage, and it was also housing for workers, and this is like the 1940s, 1950s, and um, as you know, it was owned by the Click family, 
I know that family is still in the area, and I think um, one was she grew up on the mountain. That was the thing. She was like, my house used to be like right here where oh, these, wow. these cherries are planted. Oh, that's like, awesome. That's where I she's like turning. She came. She came to see us. Yeah, yeah. And, and she's having yeah. her birthday up there soon, and I think uh, I think she's doing like ninety six or something. But it was just really cool to hear, just like somebody. I was connected with that property, and you know she could definitely tell you all those details about what, what really happened up there. But it was yeah, it was, it was an orchard for so long, and at some point it uh, was unfarmed for like four years. Right. Like so a lot of the trees were they weren't producing any longer once the property owner purchased the the property. But if you really kind of wanted to keep up that orchard theme of just the history of it. So we do still have some apples planted, some peaches planted, um, some other fruit trees. Pears and cherries. Which currently we're, we're not doing really anything with that. But we've been selling to some cideries in the area. Um, and then they're actually looking at doing a small amount of palm oil. Oh, nice. Yeah, so a lot of people aren't really familiar with you guys. Yeah, tell, tell, us, tell, tell us a little bit more. Yeah, yeah so Palm is big in Normandy. We're of course right. in that town. It's a, a French beverage um, that you'll see some in New York and Washington State, Oregon, um, but it's not like super prevalent. But essentially, you're taking apple juice and then you're taking apple brandy and you're fortifying just the juice itself up to around like 20, 25% alcohol. And um, so the only used barrels that we buy are saltern barrels because we just got two of them just for that project so we're putting them in saltern barrels for like at least you know two to four years um, so this year is kind of like experimental for it like we actually had to bring the and then we actually have the juice you know stored and ready to go so we're probably gonna actually we might do that this year <laughs> um and just kind of see what like people's reception is because it's, it's a nice little aperitif right um you know has a little cheese and with it being fortified juice it still kind of has this like really natural apple element to it and uh, i think the saltern barrels are just gonna kind of i don't know you know you might get some tropical notes in there something like that i'm not an expert on it like i said we were completely experimenting here yeah um but we're going to see how that goes thing versus like a cider like a cider doesn't really fit our brand like we like cider we'll drink it um but as far as yeah. like, the luxury yeah. wine and you know aesthetic it's you know if, if you can also buy pints of cider it's a little like eh, where, where, where are you gonna put your energy with you know what people actually that. But I think Palma is like the best fit for actually going to do something with apples or do something really interesting out of that. Yeah, unique. You don't really think of it. Right, right. And that also might bring another idea to um, other people of orchards that maybe they want to make something more for you and just uh, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll see how it gets and don't judge us for what's a terrible. It's terrible. We're not gonna sell it, but yes. uh, <laughs> I well, think I'm sure it'll be great. That's exciting. So you've talked a little bit, Katie has referenced a few times, tasting experience. Mm-hmm. So, so talk to us about what the tasting experience is like. What's kind of what some of the offerings are? Sure. So um, once you come to see us, we have a couple of different options for you. We can do a self-guided experience where essentially is kind of like a flight experience. It's really more for those that want to taste wine and I would say enjoy, enjoy your company. But really not take everything in, right? Yes, yes. yes. It's just, just more of amongst your own friends or if you know you bring your significant other up there, maybe you just want to talk to them and not listen to us the entire time. Because <laughs> <laughs> originally there was only going to be one option, which was you're getting a seated, guided experience. That's it. But then uh, I think it was actually Jenny was in the producer time and kind of talking to some wineries in the area. And they were saying, themselves and kind of explore that on their own um but that's a great thing to do for sure Mm -hmm. yeah 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 so okay we'll have that option prefer people to be the guided option because it's it's kind of a new idea it's a very high price point wine and all that extra stuff once they kind of sit down and actually get the story and if you have an attendant there that's knowledgeable and they can answer all of your questions accurately um it sells itself our other experience has been it's it's all a seated experience really to relax and unwind and take your time with each wine um, and we'll take you through currently we have um, 
one white wine or Sauvignon Blanc. We also have uh, Merlot or Cabernet Sauvignon and two different blends that we offer. Um, so we talk to our guests about each wine and pretty much fill them in with as much information as they want to know. And in addition to that, we offer different cheese plates and grazing offerings, kind of charcuterie spreads, that sort of thing, in addition to those wines. Yeah, and that's also locally sourced and kind of going into we wanted to do the commercial kitchen thing, and I think there's still plans for that. Um, but as far as, I mean, it's like it's a hundred year old building, and like retrospecting that out to fit all the check marks for a commercial kitchen seemed to be like a little bit more of a headache than we want to deal with at the moment. Um, so yeah, so we sourced it from Barking Coyote, um, which is an awesome, awesome place. They really yeah. care. They have a farm, and like a lot of the produce they have is sourced from their farm, and actually a lot of like. Again, where do the apples go for the peaches? We'll send it to them to make that nice removal couchement for the boards. So we kind of keep it as local as possible. So it's like a little hybridization of, yeah, some of it's ours and they prepare it, but it's still, you know, you can drive 15 minutes down the road and find where it came from. You know? So it's not just like prepackaged, whatever you might find at the grocery store. Yeah. Um, of course, it's better to have that than nothing, but, uh, <laughs> but we wanted to add like so we're actually in a really good spot to take a quick little break, but when we come back, let's talk a little bit about the winemaking approach that y'all have, and then maybe let's talk a little bit about the wines themselves. All right, sounds good. Sounds Thanks. great. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back to Season 5. Thanks. Thanks we're so much. I can't here. believe it's been, yeah, I can't believe it's been five seasons. Who knew? And it's already January yeah. too, so it's it's incredibly it's like a double whammy. <laughs> so new year, new topic for the year. So what are we going to be exploring this year? So this year we're going to go into history. Ooh, you like history? Yeah. So we are just going to do the history of wine across the year. So we are going to divide the year up into twelve parts and historical periods, and we hope you. Join us through the year and go with us through the history of wine. Exciting. Well, we'll be here, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to talk about what's happening, and we'll try to tie it to modern-day winemaking and modern-day things going on. And we'll end each segment with some fun wine pairings. Hmm. We, we do like a good wine pairing, too, so that's exciting. <laughs> and it sounds like we have a lot of ground to cover, so where are we going to start? Yeah. We do have quite, we have our work <laughs> cut out for us. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> there will be a test at the end. <laughs> so for January, we are going to cover the BC times. So <laughs> we're just going to get us to zero, right? We're going to do all the BC times. Okay. Well, let's get going. So before we get started, one thing we wanted to kind of delve into or explain for those who don't know is the idea of old world versus new world. We'll probably drop that around a lot, but in general, wine countries are usually determined as old world or new world. So obviously old world comes first and that's where we'll be for a little while, for a few months. These are some of the first wine producing regions. And then later on, we'll get into the new world. But so, you know, France, Italy, Spain, that type of thing you think of, that's going to be old world. And new world's going to be the United States. Uh, South Africa, South America, Australia, New Zealand. But just keep that in mind because that'll kind of, we'll probably use the term old world a lot. Very okay. cool. So the story of wine begins, like most things in the old world, also with most things, the expansion of wine is going to attract the empires and religion thanks to trade and demands and skills. So wine, you know, tracks through the history of the world, as most things do, with the rise and fall of different empires. But to start, our Vitis vinifera grapes, the ones we love so much, are native to the region of modern-day Georgia, that kind of modern-day area of Armenia, um, Georgia, parts of Iran, Russia, and Turkey. Uh, so that is where we are starting off on our journey. Exciting. Kind of a nice place to kick things off. Yep. And, you know, something to keep in mind is the first wines were, I 
antioxidants. Everything you need to make wine is naturally present on a grape. So if you have grapes in the field or and they're growing naturally and, and you pick them and just let them sit, they're going to turn into some form of alcohol. They're going to ferment. It makes things a little bit easier, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's just when you harness that power <laughs> is when it, stuff gets exciting. Yeah, so we'll continue our story, or I guess I suppose start it, really, in China and the Middle East. So the weird thing about BC times is they go backwards. <laughs> so somewhere between 7,000 and 6,600 BC, we're not going to get too hung up in the dates here, but there is evidence from ancient tribes in the Yellow River Valley of China, evidence of a fermented rice, honey, fruit wine that was stored in earthenware jars. So this goes way back. Kind of coming next after that, you know, so we have civilization itself beginning in the Middle East. So it kind of naturally follows that wine is such a civilized thing, right? Also originated in the same region. Archaeologists have discovered the oldest winemaking facility in Armenia. So back in that Middle Eastern region, along with grape residue in clay jars, in Georgia and finds of grape domestication in Eastern Turkey, hmm. all the way back to 8,000 and 4,000 BC. So Russian winemaking pots called Quavri, and it's spelled really fun, it's Q-V-E-V-R-I. And these have been traced back to what's modern day Georgia, um, which all of this area is in the news a lot right now, of course. And there's ancient winemaking pots that date back to to China and all over this area. So really just kind of pervasive. There's even been evidence of grape growing and wine consumption from the late Stone Age that's been discovered all the way up in Northern Italy near Venice. So really just quite pervasive. So the interesting thing about these wine-making pots that I struggled over the pronunciation and spelling of, the quavery, is that today in Georgia, they still are practicing making wine in earthenware vessels the same ones. Um, and also the cement eggs that we see sometimes even now harken back to this method or mode as well. Hmm. So still being done. What's old is new again. Exactly. It's interesting to see how these uh, you know trends kind of come and go. Mm -hmm. Even more in this area, wine has been produced in, in Israel since biblical times. It was exported to Rome during the Roman period. You know, so all over in this whole area of Mesopotamian Egypt and with trade and winemaking knowledge and influences and the rise and fall of civilizations in this area, it's, it really just played a big, important role in these early times. Okay, well, tell us more. All right. So, in addition to the quavery, we also see evidence of clay pots called amphorae. And so, we'll see these throughout um, ancient Greek and Roman history. Uh, so, the Vitus vinifera grape, which was uh, indigenous to what's modern-day Georgia, right? So these really grew and expanded and were cultivated throughout Europe then at this point. And we have a lot of this to thank the ancient Greeks and Romans. So we see this in the archaeological history with these clay pots, the amphorae, just the, really, the spread of production and use of wine throughout the world. Um, <clears throat> and so by 3000 BC, winemaking had begun in the Middle East and spread and was definitely established throughout Europe by then, by this 3000 BC time period. So like I mentioned, we have the Greeks to thank for a lot of this, kind of setting the stage. And so to kind of paint a picture, at its cultural and geographical peak, Greek civilization spread all the way from Egypt to the mountains in Afghanistan. So they were really you know, per pervasive and prevalent in this area. Moving forward a little bit, Greece eventually gets conquered by the Roman Republic in the 2nd century BC. So there's some overlap in ancient Greek and ancient Roman civilizations. And so we see some overlapping influences here. They were distinct, but they also overlapped. So that's kind of hold that in the back of your mind. But in the ancient world, Greece was once one of the foremost producers of wine. But if we think about that modern connection, today, Greek wines are really only recently starting to be drunk throughout the rest of the world. It's kind of a newer thing back on, on the global stage. But back in the ancient world, it was one of the biggest producers of wine. So the earliest evidence of Greek wine 
is really dated to 6,500 years ago. And at this point, it was produced on a household or communal basis. In ancient times, so trade starts to become more extensive and it's transported from the end end to end of the Mediterranean by the Greeks. And like I said, the uh, Greeks and Romans overlapped some. And so Greek wine had an especially high prestige in Italy under the Roman Empire. So that's kind of interesting. It sounds fun. I mean, it's hard to find it nowadays. Mm-hmm. So I guess it seems like it was everywhere back then. Yeah, and of um, high importance. So by 2000 BC, wine was a really important part of Greek culture. And the expansion of the Greek empire brought vineyards and winemaking and knowledge and skills throughout the Mediterranean and the Greek empire. So again, stretching from North Africa to Southern Spain, Southwestern France, Sicily, the Italian mainland, so really just all throughout. And so I mentioned those amphorae. So these are those clay Greek pots. Um, they would have been sealed with pine resin and tops were attached. So we see, you know, evidence of these throughout the archaeological record. And then I also mentioned how there's some overlap, right, between the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. And so you'll see that just in the name of their gods. So Dionysus, the Greek god of wine, is similar to Bacchus, the Roman god of wine. So there's that overlap, distinct but similar. And so moving into Roman history a little bit, it's very similar to the to the Greek history. They overlap. You know, at its peak, the Roman Empire stretched more across the Mediterranean. So what we think of today is Portugal, Spain, England, Western Europe, and then part of Northern Africa, too, and some of Western Asia. But we see it more along the Mediterranean. And so grapes have been growing. We have, you know, winemaking going on. But the Romans took it to the next level. So... You know, we have grapes, we have wine, but Romans were really the ones that brought about some of our technological advances in viticulture and winemaking that set the stage for where we are today. So a few of those things, Romans were coopers, and so they were the first to use oak barrels for fermentation, storage, and transport of wine. That's a big one because we still do that today, but we we start to see that with the Roman uh, Empire and with the Romans. They probably weren't using American oak back then. that would have been a little hard to get (laughs) and so the roman empire is expanding um and they're expanding you know into to some of the areas we consider today and they're starting to grow grape vines in in france and some of the regions we think of today are starting to get established under the roman empire as winemaking regions such as languedoc the rhone valley Burgundy, Bordeaux. So these areas are starting to become, you know, what they are today. Fascinating. Something interesting with the Roman Empire. So it expanded, it started to drive demand and trade for wine. So, you know, under the the Greek Empire, we kind of see a lot of wine being made, but it was more under the household level or community level. The Roman Empire, the Romans started actually taking the wine and making trade and using it as an economic advantage for for what they were doing. But when we think about the wine from the Roman Empire, don't think of it as the wine we're drinking today because it wasn't. It was very different. They often mixed water with it to decrease the high alcohol content because it was drank more regularly. And the palate often liked sweeter wine. And so they drank sweet wines. I mean, if we think about our general progression of taste and how most folks start with sweet wine, we're still very early on. So the Roman Empire started off with sweet wine as well. And they even mixed their wine. They mixed honey. They added herbs and spices, salt. So the wine was not what we think of as wine today. I'm looking anything goes mix. <laughs> yes. But, you know, going back to some of the, the improvements the Roman Empire brought to, to winemaking, they introduced the use of trellises. So if we think about grapevines, they don't grow, you know, up in pretty rows and <laughs> with their branches out perfectly for the, for the clusters. So the introduction of trellises to support grape growing came from the Romans. They improved the, the presses and some of the different implements they were using to make wines as well. We see a lot. We can thank the Romans for a lot of things that that have helped us on our wine journey. 
It's also believed that the Romans were the first to use glass jars as well and corks, not exactly the same corks we have today, but just the, the general idea of a glass container that is corked um, for holding the wine. The Roman Empire is growing. We're getting closer now to our, our zero, the end of our BC times, but just a couple of fun things with, with ending out this time period. So we see evidence in 200 BC, some, some ancient writings or different things where Roman soldiers were encouraged to drink two to three liters of wine a day for good health. Wow. Um, but hopefully that was the watered down version. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they were very well hydrated. <laughs> In 121 BC, that that year is called the Opimum. Op, oh my gosh, Opimian, maybe? Yes, I have no idea. Vintage, okay. but that is the best vintage of the Roman Golden Age, um, and it was named. The vintage was named after after one of the the consuls of the time. So that's kind of the first year we see where they've actually you know noted a vintage year for the wine. Interesting. I wonder what they would have called it. I don't know. I don't even know what the grape variety was either, but <laughs> something they to probably up. didn't know. I was going to say, they may not have either. <laughs> the Greeks and Romans really, the Greeks got it started and then the Romans really took it to that next level. And like Jesse said, just gave us a lot of the practices we're still using today, but really expanded even all the way up into Germany. You know, so when we learn about different wine regions and how it all connects, and it goes back to this like it's you're, you're starting at the beginning and so it's a helpful frame of reference as you learn about different wine regions to know how it got there and why absolutely i mean we just went eight thousand years in the past 15 minutes so, that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. so much <laughs> i have yeah. whiplash a little <laughs> and a fun note to to kind of wrap up on too is that cleopatra's favorite wine was Muscat of Alexandria, and that wine is still made today. If you ever want to enjoy what Cleopatra's favorite was, <laughs> there you go. While taking my my uh, bath and milk. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like, not to talk politics too much, but a lot of the wines we drink today are from these areas, but even the birthplace of, of wine, there would probably be more, except that's a very politically unstable area and like historically has been or you know one of the points we had up here is that there are three languages that had a word for wine that are not derived from latin so greek basque and hungarian and so even here you would probably see more wine from hungary or that area if it weren't for political instability that's been prevalent you know not just in modern history but throughout mm -hmm. um so it's just kind of interesting that wine is probably was probably made and produced there it just maybe didn't get out hmm. or has not been exported because of trade and civilization and all those overarching themes that we talked about at the beginning very interesting so now we talked about some pairing ideas too what would you have with an 8000 bc wine <laughs> <laughs> yeah so if i happened upon uh an amphorae of <laughs> unspoiled greek wine now i don't know we so so really what took with this is kind of what would have been representative of, of this time. So there is a Georgian wine. So Georgia, the birthplace of wine, not just a state in the United States. Um, so Georgian wine would be our Cazzatelli that we're starting to be a little bit more familiar with because that is grown here in the United States now. And so this is a fun one. I believe we've talked about it before on the podcast. Um, that can be fun to pair with. It's a white wine, a little crisp, a little acidic. So plays nicely with others. What would you guys pair that with? And tossing it to you first. I think we usually do like a crowd cake with our cazzatelli because that nice mm. fresh acidity goes really well with seafood. I was going to say seafood. Yeah. And how about yourselves? I think that seafood is a nice, nice choice for sure. Can stand up against that. Like we like to throw out Thai food or sushi. I'm not sure how that would go against these. Might play play okay with some of those. I'm trying to picture it. <laughs> Maybe could work like a, you know, like a cream cheesy roll. <laughs> so another representative of this time period we picked was Muscat of Alexandria. So we were talking about Cleopatra's favorite wine. 
does that make her like an original influencer? <laughs> 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 like hashtag sponsored Moscato of Alexandria. Uh, so this would have been a sweeter wine, which you know representative of the taste of the time. Um, and this might have might go well with like an almond biscotti or charcuterie that's going to have a variety of you know salty <laughs> meats, but also could go with a nice soft pungent cheese and some dried fruits or something like that pair nicely with a variety. I can see that. And sometimes like a, a slightly sweeter wine goes well with some savory foods too, because like, mm-hmm. it's like comfort foods or, you know, just like everyday foods, because it's not something that you have to be special and fancy about, but it just goes well. Have you guys ever had a muscat of Alexandria? I believe we have at some point, but I'm not completely sure about that. Same here. I'm like, I don't know that I've had yeah. one. Actually, I'm gonna have to go search one out now. Yeah. I know I've had things that have that root in the name, like muscat or muscadet or muscadine, which we know is not related, but you know, kind of a familiar root word. The muscat family is a large family, mm-hmm. like muscat blanc, muscat canelli. And then one more we picked from this, like the very first one I threw out there was a mead. So you know, a honey wine that would have been found like in ancient China, you know, and also made throughout area as well. So a traditional mead you might pick can play nicely again with a cheese board to run the gamut between those more savory and sweet offerings on that. A fruit mead could be fun with some tacos, like fish tacos with a fruit salsa, a salad with strawberries and other fruit on it, goat cheese, you know, so it could be kind of fun to to match against that. I agree with all of those. I mean, meat just is a, such a versatile thing. It's like, okay, just play around and experiment. I just pictured a cheese board that also had like little glasses of different kinds of meads on it as well. Part of the Ooh. cheese board. How fun would that be? That sounds really fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the meat category is so massive. <laughs> mm-hmm. It'd be fun to explore all the different styles and varieties. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, it's been 8,000 years, so any parting <laughs> words on this history's lesson today? I think it's time to take a nap. Wow. It's quite a trip. Yeah, I don't know. We're just setting the stage for the, the next era in wine history and, and how it got us to today. So, 8,000 down, 2,000 more. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Jesse, Jessica, thank you very much. It's been very enlightening, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you. You can find out more information about the Winemouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. So we're back with Katie and Matt. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about the wines and the winemaking style. So maybe walk us through kind of the portfolio currently and maybe anything that you want to preview that's coming down the pike. So yeah, currently on our wine list, uh, I'm sure we probably mentioned previously we have five wines. Uh, and again, going back to almost like the Opus One premise and the mindset of you, you know, really do make two wines. That was our whole idea at first. Um, but then once you make those, you make two blends. I'm going in reverse here. I should start. So <laughs> let's go back. So varietals, um, Sauvignon Blanc, I have a white wine, that's one thing you notice early, um, especially when we opened up in the summer, it's like no one wants to drink uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Sometimes it's hot here. It's hot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have a varietal Merlot, um, and that's only like due to the really small productions, like Sauvignon is like 300 cases, Merlot is 300 cases. Um, we have a varietal Cabernet Sauvignon, it's only 100 cases, like super limited. Then the rest of our production comes from our cheese. Um, and those are just really nice uh, representations of like the Melon Terroir, Alpha being one of them, and the Melon being just one of the others. Um, but we made the uh, varietals really just kind of for enthusiasts like us. It's a recognizable name. Maybe you can say, oh, well, Capsaw, you have the Capsaw? Yes, we do. Because, um, you know, a lot of our blends are Capsaw heavy anyway. But it's to the point of like we wanted to capture that varietal and, you know, just 100% essence and let people experience that alone. Then taste everything as we. At the end of the day, yeah, we really do make late two wines. It's like off and on the main thing. And um, if we have a nice year for cab, we'll make cab, change the oil. But every year is not the year to do that. So 
So talk to us some, some about the the winemaking approach and the different. I know you use concrete yeah. in, in addition to stainless steel, the barrel program. Talk talk to us about some of that. Yeah, yeah, okay. You want sure, sure. So we use concrete for our Sauvignon Blanc. Twenty twenty was our first vintage of Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah. Um, so we were actually able to incorporate that in uh, with our Merlot um, because we didn't want the oak to overpower the fruit on our Merlot because our Merlot is a pretty delicate wine. Because I guess it's like also. Um, it's all new French oak barrels every year, so that's also like kind of uh, the point of like what she was talking about. The Merlot maybe being over I was just throwing in a little disclaimer yeah. of like why that would be <laughs> <laughs> just for the audience. <laughs> yeah, so um, for our fermentations, we we do use stainless steel fermentations on our reds as well as oak fermentations. Um, and to talk you through a little bit of that, uh, everything. From harvest, everything is hand-sorted in the vineyard and then picked into lugs, which are only 40-pound containers. So we want to be as delicate on the fruit as possible. And then once it gets into the winery, then then we are um, hand-sorting clusters for any underripe fruit or if any leaves make it onto the sorting table. Leaves or bugs or what else you'll find in the vineyard. But with the 40 pounds, it's a little bit easier than, like, you know, like a half ton. Yeah, yeah. Right? And like Katie was saying, it's all about, like, managing that small quantity at a time. And it's, we're, we're built for accuracy, not speed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so cluster sorting. Cluster um, sorting. Just the, we have an oscillating distemmer. Hmm. So really delicate on the fruit. It just shakes off all the ripe berries onto our uh, berry sorting table, which has grease in it so if any um, shot berries get through there then it doesn't go into our tank um, to impact any green flavors into our tank but all elevator yeah fermentations yes we're i I guess explain what the elevator is since we're not on video so um so the elevator rides up to the next (laughs) pretty much yeah yeah so it's it's like gravity in essence but we are using electric motors to move the fruit um but it's not going through like an auger and a must pump so everything's kind of almost like little hands carrying it through the simmer and then (laughs) after it goes through the simmer you're going to have little hands carrying it through your fermenter so everything yes super gentle like it's the same amount of aggressiveness as like i said like literally using your own hands to move it uh it's just all machines uh we're not a like gravity built wiring and there might be room for that in the future we're, we're kind of in a temporary phase right now where like the winery itself is not our final form of fermentation and we might get a gravity in the future where like your crust pad is going to be on a higher level and you're going to start moving things down uh, without the assist of electric motors and um, going on you know step to step so you might have like three levels by the time sounds like you have plenty of elevation elevation rather to uh, yeah. work with it yes. exactly exactly <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's um, but yeah, it's a really great setup. And again, it kind of again, I keep saying Opus One, um, it kind of stems from that too. Is like, look at what they're doing, and look at what Rutgers is doing with Opus One. And it's almost like it's hard for the East Coast because of the weather, but you can't look at the West Coast and think you can make a wine close to that quality. You have to actually like spend more money and advise it, like, what is going to Rutgers impact. And not so much of like we're not wasting money up there. It's more of like this is very functional and operational. Um, it's not like a beautiful winery, like on the inside, but on the outside it is got really nice rock work. Mm-hmm. But um it's a functional space and it's it's like a kitchen. Um, whereas all the equipment is there to increase the quality of the wine. We're looking at as much complexity as possible every step of the way. Um from the blocks that we select to harvest at a certain to choosing what fermentation vessel they're going into, what yeast strain we're using, to uh, separating our pre-runs from our crushdown fraction, to what toast level the, uh, the wine is going into, what barrel it's going into. Yeah, we department wines everything. We break it down into its all the smallest forms, and you're making Cabernet Sauvignon from different areas, and that's kind of the cool thing about like stainless steel and you have your old school 40 hectoliter oak french 
show from the news. Um, you get Europe, and you have Napa, like each side of the winery, and you have these really cool contrasts and blending both of those styles together to really make a, yeah, more conflict. Um, and then even some of the concrete, like you're mentioning like with the Mileto, which I thought was a pretty smart angle, just like if you don't want to overrip your wine, well, concrete's essentially in a barrel, it breathes, it's porous, it's just not imparting any flavors onto it. Hmm. So you can really focus your terroir expression, you can focus your varietal expression of that one grape uh, using that vessel. Um, I mean, yeah, we did finish it in 600 liters. So that's what, you know, we're evolving out yeah. of doing this and figuring this out. So most of our wines are staying at 225 liters in your French oak barrels. Um, but we did have some custom built 600 liters for Midwell in particular, which is a slower extraction. I mean, we don't have to tussle with any different vessels so much. Um, and just kind of looking at a balance standpoint. We don't want to coat a beautiful steak with a very rich sauce on the steak. Great analogy. <laughs> so you mentioned a little bit about some temporary setup or where right. it's not permanent. Mm-hmm. So maybe talk about what are some of the things that you hope to do in the, in the future uh, on the estate? Yeah. Um, you want me to do the winery? You want to do the winery? Because it's, it's, it's the winery aspect and then there's the customer aspect too. So like, I guess um, as you guys know, the winery is not attached to the tasting lounge currently. And of course, people were always curious about where the winery is. Well, it's you know, 45 seconds up the hill there, but they don't see it. And I think, you know, looking at that property and like where we could put things is... I guess part of the challenge as far as all the spots are really nice. Yeah. Um, but we kind of want to put some stuff on here eventually. And going back to like nice grab detail wineries, um, a bit more of a, a nice vista, like a nice view over the tree line uh, for the customer. And when we started it, that was kind of like our investor was saying, you need to use like kind of what you have and I'll get you the equipment, but like this building is here to use that, this building is here, let's use that. Um, save you know save money where you can and spend it where it really matters, which is the wine. But as you grow your brand and start bringing some revenue, you can start looking at where do you expand. And we're not going to expand in the quantity of wine, but we're going to expand in like the quality of customers. I mean, so well, what we're looking at longer term will be the like the higher elevation. Um, we might be looking at doing almost a winery tasting experience that is higher elevation. When you're at our tasting lodge currently, as you're looking out to the left, there's a really nice spot that on the highest point of that vineyard, you can look out and you can see towards, um, what's the Salem right there? Yeah, you can see downtown what's the Salem. Um, Like you can see the skyline right there. I feel like looking towards the future, that's kind of something People are kind of missing. Yeah, well, whatever we can do to improve the experience sure. is what we're looking at. Like I said, first and foremost, when we started the business plan, the entire goal was like we're just going to enjoy wine. Wine first, player later, um, which is very important. And of course, like, what we have now is beautiful. Like, it's, it's, Absolutely. It's a lovely yeah. space. And I'm, we're just always looking at how we can evolve and like, how we can elevate it. Uh, we keep using the word elevation like, a lot here. But. <laughs> That's kind of the theme. That's, that's the theme of the property. That's the theme of the brand. It's just like everything besides the physical, where you are standing on planet Earth to your actual experience and what your mood should be like. And that's what a lot of times we're looking for. Well, it's cool that you mentioned too, like actually trying to get a little bit higher. It's hard to imagine that right. there's still room to go up. So yeah, awesome. yeah. Because you're kind of nestled like right between vineyards and stuff. And it's funny because like a lot of wineries are looking at you know, mountaintops and mountain ranges in the distance, you're on a mountain here. So <laughs> you have to really, I mean, this new tasting facility, um, you know, we probably put it on stilts. Like we're really going to put it on the highest, you know, elevation on the site locally and then probably, um, yeah, raise it up from there and see if we can put a winery into that to where it's the highest point where you can go get the crush pad. And so we're going to flow a wine down probably, you know, three to four different levels and, um, and have people be able to kind of interact with that and see cool. that. Because I think that's a big part of the experience too. Transparency is very important. And, um, you know, like I said, people are always like, where's the winery? And it is very close, but um, if they can actually kind of have something a little more tangible, I think that would uh, make everybody happy. Well, then you almost have like one of those show kitchens, right? So you have to make sure everything's clean and tidy. Not that it isn't, but right. you know, yes, like, everyone's yeah. looking at you judging in that. Right, so right. Well, okay. we'll put the window in. Uh, I worked on <laughs> the winery in the past. I had the window, uh, which like Krispy Kreme pretty much. Oh, yeah. 
cellar staring up at you know. <laughs> so what's the equivalent of the hot mouth sign in a winery? <laughs> oh man, what is that? Well, when you open that barrel, barrel open, do a do a cellar tasting. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that you've all been working together for quite some time now. Yeah. What would you say has left the biggest impact on you? Um, well, I think besides just like growing as, as a team together and even expanding that team to like really nice people like Jimmy and Joseph Geller and like, like kind of working with people that we have like an immense mutual respect for. Like I've learned a lot from Katie, for example, and like when you work with somebody that you share the same goal, but you have a different way of achieving that goal. Instead of me being upset that somebody has a different viewpoint, you accept it and you learn from it. And it's, it's vice versa. And it's um, it's always been the pinnacle of my career. And it's been really great for me. And loving who you work with is amazing. Um, and I think everybody that we have, you know, it's a lot of synergy. And um, we're all happy with each other. <laughs> That's the main point. People really do make the product. And if you don't uh, believe in that, be really hard to do. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think we couldn't do this without each other. Um, but but also where we are, what we're able to achieve, um, premium wine production, um, really just working together, um, know, knowing the site selection that we have, what we're able to achieve together. Yeah, it helps when everybody's on the same page and everybody mm-hmm. believes in what they're and that's part of the authenticity where we're not trying to sell the gimmick we believe in this and, uh, passion behind it the passion behind it yeah from from in the winery to out in the vineyard to the sales front um, I couldn't ask for work with any other people <laughs> <laughs> awesome it certainly does make the days go by much more easily and, and makes coming to work and for sure much yeah. more exciting it's, it's really yes. not a job yeah. that's the other thing too yeah. like once you you stop looking at it as a job Really not. Yeah, this is like you know, our it's shared a passion. project. Yeah, it's a passion. And, um, Every day is different. Yeah, love what mm-hmm. you know. Very cool. Very cool. What would you say you're looking forward to as like the next big thing? Well, I guess besides a lot of things that we just covered, uh, probably like some of the wines and um, getting creative with what we can offer our customers, not just from a taste standpoint, but like I was saying, from experiences and um, getting some feedback. So this is we're not even one year open. Now we're kind of looking at what do people like, what do they don't like, and we're all open-minded people, and we want to make the changes that we need to make. Uh, of course, you can't make any, everybody happy, but um, we have over 100 wine communities that are really nice and uh, boosted up and culture to come. And, uh, I think yeah, for the future, just all the again, uh, so you want to talk about like the like, 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 like yeah, I guess how we landed on that, please. Yeah, yeah I guess we kind of. <laughs> Talked about Rosé a little bit. We really started, um, I guess it was June yeah, of this year. It was, yeah. Um, and we had planned on opening the previous fall. Um, so we had you know, one white wine, four red wines off everyone. When we opened during the heat of the summer, it was, we were really opening a lot of Sauvignon Blanc, of course. <laughs> Yeah. It's hot outside. Mm-hmm. Somebody wants something cold to drink and refreshing, high acid, lower alcohol. So the rosé really made um, sense. We yeah. felt like um, was missing with our program. We never planned on our rosé wine. Mm-hmm. Like, we barely planned on a white wine, but we figured we had to plan some of course wines that do it. So, but rosé just got born naturally as we look at people. Um, yeah, grabbing for the colder drinks, which is Absolutely. I would say it's sparkling, which you also mentioned. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I almost forgot about that. Yeah, you were talking um, about that. Too. <laughs> yeah. So, so we can both talk about that. But um, yeah, so we, we already have Chardonnay planted on the property. Um, so we've kind of started uh, Chardonnay. We made a Chardonnay sparkling base this year. Nice. Um, and so we're kind of working on building up a cuvee with that. We may release a vintage. Chardonnay, sparkling, traditional method. Maybe, maybe in a few years. Yeah, that's we'll the see. figuring out like the style of sparkling. Of course, it's it's all going to be champagne method. But as far as like how long you want it to be on the leaves, is it going to be you know 
foolishness of Rudy Ash. But actually, like I think we both kind of changed our viewpoint on champagne as a concept and like what it is. And uh, I mean, some of our favorite wines ever were strong, crucial, complex, but high acid, lively, vibrant. And um, sometimes you miss that with some champagnes that are like ten years on the lease. And it's more of like a cooked apple almost, like yeah, mm-hmm. you know, very, very easy oh, yeah. brioche. And, uh, and that's nice. But um, we took a lot of inspiration from. Started drinking a lot of Domaine du Roi, the toughest vineyard in Toulouse, Bronte Champagne. And I like the way that it was described by a wine importer in Australia, where he was talking about how lovely and elegant and rich champagnes can be, uh, where a lot of times it's referred to as just a sore wrapped in silk, hmm. where it's high acid, it's very elegant. So he said, you know, Domaine du Roi is just what's stuck in an electrical outlet. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to get that by having you know, less time on the like, Instead of like, Aging your few days for 10 years, uh, I think, honestly, less might be warm. And people want it, too, because everyone's just like, oh, yeah. Hey, when's this one coming out? I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, uh, it might it's be, ready. it could be a decade. I don't know. But yeah. so we're going to do a combination. So we want to release a lot of, like, really fresh, sparkling wines. Still, we're talking at least, you know, two years minimum uh, on release. Um, but um, hold that back to we want a five-year line. So two designs. You know, we're talking about sparkling wine off checking the scores now so it's just like do the same one hold it for another five years oh, yeah. scores it again see what that's like yeah um as much variation as you can and no pun intended but like you uncork the monster once you start <laughs> this process you're very well invested into it for a long period of time yeah and, um, there's no quick sparkling wine. there's no quick sparkling yeah. wine no there's uh well, it's, not traditional yeah, not just right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah doing it right but really capturing that style i, I think is, is really important and uh you know i've had a hard time finding Really good Chablis lately. Uh, I don't know if you're including on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why we started looking at these champagnes. And I think that's what we brought. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we found in producing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. it does. Absolutely. So you mentioned climate change a little bit. So how is that impacting decisions you're making in the vineyard and the winery? Um, it's definitely something I think that being in the wine industry, like you know, it because you're dealing with wine and you're dealing with food. Um, but as far as like, this year, for example, was almost like an unknown. There seems to be a pattern right now. Bad year, good year, bad year, good year. Um, like 19, for example, mm-hmm. was awesome. 2020 right. was one of the worst things I've ever seen. Where it just hurricane after hurricane, rain after rain. Um, 21 was awesome. Um, 22 was kind of a mid-20s. Where it's, we dodged hurricane Ian for two. Mm-hmm. That was our only threat to the season. It was a lot of early season rain, honestly. But a lot of our reds are late. Right? But what's kind of saved us? Yeah, like, um, well, usually, I think a lot a lot of North Carolina vineyard owners are worried about planting late season ripening varietals, such as Castile. Right. But that at that stage where we were and where Hurricane Ian was, like, it wasn't, it wasn't ripe enough to where it was going to cause any damage from the rain. Um, we we probably maybe got about an inch, an inch and a half of rain from that, but it was mainly wind. Mm. Um, so we we felt like we needed to hedge our bets with that. And really, with the styles of wines we're making, we have to feel like take some risk. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in order to get the rewards that we're yeah. hoping for. So, it's like wine making in general. Yeah, we kind of flipped it this year as far as we picked Petit Verdot, Um, Not too early, but like earlier than maybe we would want, but of course as a vineyard manager versus us. And um, that was our insurance policy of this wine is going to be clean. I mean, it was still over 24 bricks, so we're not like yeah. too upset about it. But on this site, like we've gotten 28 bricks in the past with Petit Verdot. Gav, we're looking 24, 25 bricks. Just us being picky. Just us being picky. Yeah, we thought about that too. We're like, you know. Years ago, whenever you like pass on your career and like other places you've worked, and you kind of, you know, a lot of people will be thankful for, I mean, even 22 bricks. Mm-hmm. People would say, well, yeah. And um, it was, yeah, it was us being picky. But having that insurance pick of like a nice portion of a tea for dough, it's not a 16% alcohol blender this year, but um, it can at least, you know, if we were wrong about the hurricane and calf getting kind of shaky and light, um, we'd have some. Would not be the same price point that we're currently paying. 
Um, that's another thing. We plan to, you know, if, if the year is not as good, we're not going to charge you for it. Um, we'll, we'll take that on, on, on to ourselves. And, um, yeah, and so we'll fluctuate in both directions. You know, so mm-hmm. it kind of is what we want. Makes sense. It, it should. Like, it's like a lot of people pick a price point, and it's like we make caps off, and it's $35 every year. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you look at the rest of the good. world, yeah, it's it's they fluctuate. Yeah. Um. So we plan to do the same thing. I mean, yeah, you want it to actually, um, besides sparkling rose, um, barrel style blancs, Conti style blancs. Um, we have like non vintage blancs in there. Talk about twenty twenty being terrible. We're not selling a hundred dollars twenty twenty to anybody. But we did have some wins from that year for sure. We made a lot less wine, but we made nice. Um. But yeah, we're doing like a non vintage. Blend and we're gonna price it, you know. We're looking at doing some sub forty dollar price points with the wine. And some um, wine club exclusives also. Uh, again, RDV, Rocky Vink, these guys. Yeah. Uh, they really yeah, uh, you know have a, a friends and family with wine club yep. and wine and stuff. But we don't see any harm in kind of doing almost like an overture or, or a friends and family, or mm-hmm. like, you know, almost like a secondary thing. Yeah, sure. Uh, we want as many people as humanly possible to attend. Yeah, we're skeptical, weird, you know. Very expensive, but once you leave, they buy wine, they buy the most expensive wine, and they, they just want to be worth it. And that's what we, you know, Jenny always says the same thing too. You know, the main takeaway is people leave happy. Um, even if they don't buy anything, they enjoy themselves, they enjoy their time, and they don't feel like they're being over. Well, it's like an escape to another world, though. Like, you, as you're climbing the mountain, you're entering into another, an oasis of sorts. Yeah. And you're... <laughs> To me, you, you mentioned the state park or national forest or something yeah. earlier. I always think of it, it's almost like being on the parkway and the lodge is kind of a, reminds me of some of the buildings that you might see on the parkway. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that to me is, it's just, there's a different feeling that you have as you're climbing up and seeing all these orchards and vineyards and, and getting to the tasting lodge. It's it's just a really cool experience. Definitely. So our listeners, how they can find you. Well, so besides, you know, dynamisestatewines.com. Um, Physical, um, if you're coming to see us, we're right off 77. Ex- exit 79. I think 79, Jonesville, North Carolina. In Jonesville. And um, pretty much right right after you take that exit, you're driving up to our property. We do try to do reservation only, but we, we don't want to turn anybody away. Yeah, we, we want you to experience it any way possible. If you show up, don't be afraid. Uh, ring the gate, and I'm sure uh, we can do something uh, for you, even if it's for Ernest. But your best experience will be, of course, making that reservation. So we make sure there's enough space for everybody. We're well-staffed for everybody. We want everyone to have one of the best experiences. Yeah, we want to take, take our time with everybody and have, all have a good time. Awesome. Well, Matt and Katie... Thank you very much. We've definitely had a good time with this conversation. <laughs> We're looking forward to our next experience and visit there. So. Absolutely, guys. Just ahead. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Matt and Katie. It was great to see a younger generation of winemakers who have a passion and drive to make the best wine possible. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, the cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a free-run LLC production. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.